Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. We're looking at a passage in the book of Exodus, which finishes our series, and then we're looking at what the Apostle Paul says about this passage in his letter to the Corinthian church in the first century. And so get that. If you haven't got one, there's one over there, and Bella's going to come and read this. Exodus 34, verses 29 to 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all of the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3 verses 12 to 18. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves is your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, that light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Thanks, Bella. We all want to change. I think the idea of stagnating is a pretty you know, horrible thought to us all. No one likes the idea of stagnating and regressing. We want progress. We want to develop as a society. We want, we want to develop as people. We want to develop. Um, well, today I want to talk about what does it mean to develop or to progress as a Christian? And I guess the flip side, what does it mean to make sure you're not stagnating? and just going through the motions, and uh, even regressing as a Christian. And uh, I want to think about this idea of being transformed by God. And I want to do it from this very famous passage in Exodus, where Moses encounters God on Mount Sinai, and is so transformed that he sort of has an afterglow of glory. 
He encounters God and his face comes away. Uh, and as he comes away, his face is glowing. So much so that he has to put a veil over his face because the rest of the Israelites are so scared. And the Apostle Paul picks this up in his second letter to the Corinthian church in the first century. Yeah, and he says, we too can grow in glory. We can become more like God, just as Moses did, because we can see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And as you know Christ, as you behold Christ, as you contemplate Christ, you too can be changed. So Paul is going to say something quite amazing. He's going to say, what happened to Moses in that his face was changed, he grew in glory, can happen to you. As we experience Christ by the Spirit, we will be changed from one degree of glory to another. Now, this is the last week in our, in our book of Exodus, so let me recap the book to you and where we're at and how it's going to finish. You can summarize the book of Exodus like this, chapters 1 to 18, the God who delivers. He delivered the Israelites from Pharaoh, from Egypt. He rescued them through the Red Sea, a great deliverance. And uh, this is a paradigm of our salvation uh, from sin and, uh, and the God who delivers us. Then the God who demands. He says, I've saved you. And now I want you to obey me. Like in a marriage, they enter a covenant at Mount Sinai. And he says, I've delivered you. So all these laws are not about being saved. I've already saved you. But what does it mean to live in such a way that you honor me as my spouse? And so the God who demands on Mount Sinai in a marriage covenant. And then you have the rest of the book, 25 to 40, the God who dwells. And it's important to see that is a climax. The climax of a Christian story is not that God saved me or that he's now asked me to be obedient, but that God comes close and he makes his home and he dwells. And so we have all these chapters about the tabernacle, which was a tent where God would come and dwell with the Israelites and there was curtains and, and right in the middle inside the inner curtain was the place where God's presence dwelt. And the idea was that the tabernacle was to represent the Garden of Eden, if you were here last week, where God dwelt as king in, in unshielded, unmediated glory and his presence was there and Adam and Eve were satisfied and so the people of Israel would be satisfied with God's presence with them. But if you were here last week, we encountered a paradox. You can't live without God's presence. It's what we were all built for. We were made for to know God, but yet we can't actually get close to him. Because when we try and get close to him, we find that when Moses encounters him with a burning bush, he has to take off his sandals. We find that when God's presence comes on Mount Sinai, it starts to shake. We find that when the tabernacle is finished in chapter 40 and God's presence comes, Moses can't even get into it. We find out later in the Old Testament story, if you're here with us last week, that a man called Uzzah once touched the Ark of the Covenant, which was right in the middle of the tabernacle, and he once touched it and he died. So to enter God's presence meant death. So the next book of the Bible, Leviticus, says you need sacrifices, you need priests, you need atonement if you're going to get into God's presence. And many years later, another person would come. And he would be the high priest, he'd be the sacrifice. In fact, he said he would tabernacle amongst us. It was Jesus. And as he dies, as our sacrifice, sacrifice of atonement, it says the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We could enter God's presence without fear. Sin has been dealt with. But the conclusion of the tabernacle story, which God's presence in Eden, God's presence with the tabernacle in Israel, then it became the temple under Solomon. Then it became the person of Jesus, the presence of God on earth. We said the, the conclusion of this amazing story of God's coming to be present is that we are now the tabernacle, those that have believed in Jesus. Each one of us is a mini tabernacle walking around Dublin. God's presence lives within us. And we said this would give us amazing hope 
to know that we can be changed. And that's what Moses is saying. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians. We have hope. The new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. The old covenant never changed the heart because God never quite got inside. Whereas now God is inside. And the new covenant with Christ, the new marriage we have with Christ, is far better than the old covenant with Moses. And we looked at this. If you were here when we looked at the Ten Commandments, when we looked at Mount Sinai, the moment where Moses goes up, we said that the tablets of stone which the law was written on were always supposed to come into our hearts. The law was supposed to be written on our hearts. So all that the old covenant did, all this law that God gave Moses, was that it showed that the people were sinful and they couldn't change. And they kept breaking the law so no sooner has this marriage been ratified and they've been given the law Moses up the mountain what are they doing do you remember Tim's talk they've, they've broken the first two commandments to not have another God and not make an idol they've got a calf out and they're worshipping it they wanted a visible God they're throwing themselves into the arms of another lover and divorce is on the cards but God forgives them through the mediator Moses. And the golden calf episode ends with what I started the service with. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I can't, you die. But I'll pass by and show you my back. And I'll, I'll, show, I'll tell you who I am. Um, but as he comes down, he's radiating. Um, and, there, and therefore he has to put a veil over his face. And Paul says that veil is still over the hearts of anyone who reads the Old Testament, thinking they have to obey Old Testament law to be saved. He says there's a veil, they don't get it. They cannot see that the whole of this Old Testament story is all leading to Christ. And it's only fulfilled as we turn to Christ. So what does Paul say? Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we will never understand the book of Exodus if we read it without realizing we have to turn to Christ. Because all it does is reveal our sin and our inadequacy and that we cannot change ourselves. But then when we turn to Christ, he says he changes us and the Lord is the Spirit. And where their Spirit is, there is freedom. Freedom from what? From the penalty of sin. We're no, no longer condemned. And today, from the power of sin. It's not inevitable that you and I will sin. We don't have to go, oh, still, I'm just human, I can't help it. No, God lives in you. You're the tabernacle. There's power. There's hope. Paul, Moses says we are very bold. We have great hope now. And we can become like God. And so we get to what I think is the most important verse in the entire Bible to understand how you change as a Christian. If you don't know this verse, I want you to remember it. If you've got your Bible, I want you to underline it. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate or behold or mirror the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's, you've just got to know this verse. You've got to meditate on it. You've got to, we're going to look at it today very slowly. And you see there's a word that's difficult to translate because it could mean a number of things in the Greek. Okay? But when you know the story of Exodus, it all makes sense. Moses went up the mountain, and he encountered God, and he beheld his glory, and he gazed upon God, and he contemplated God. And as he did that, he started to mirror God. Because you become like what you worship. Whatever you gaze upon, you will reflect. Whatever you look at will become a mirror. 
and you will look like it. So Moses goes up seven times, if you remember, to receive all the law and all the instructions about this tabernacle. And when he comes back down, he's got the word to take back to the, you know, he receives the word at Mount Sinai and he takes the word from God to the people and he is uh, reflecting his glory. And Paul says exactly the same thing happens to us when we turn to Christ. We start becoming like God. We, not Moses, not, our face doesn't change, though sometimes I've heard of stories where people glow from spending so much time in prayer. But it's not that our faces change, it's our heart that changes. I want to draw out five points about what it is to grow as a Christian, to go from one degree of glory to another, to become like God. Five things. Growth as a Christian is inevitable, continuous, progressive, passive, active. Okay, growth as a Christian is inevitable. Becoming a Christian is not simply knowing that Jesus has done something for you that forgives you. It's not less than that, but it's definitely a lot more than that. Becoming a Christian is not then going, I'm now responding to Jesus by trying to live the life he wants me to. So the God who delivers, God, Jesus has saved me. That's part one of being a Christian. Part two, now how do I respond by living a life that honors him? But part three is, I am now indwelt by God. God has so united his life. God has united his life to me so that he is in me and I am in him. We are the tabernacle. And when you realize that, you realize it is absolutely, it is inevitable that you're going to change. It's inevitable. God lives in you. It's inevitable. Think of two superheroes, okay? Batman and Spider-Man. Batman is rich and a strong man with cool gadgets. His superpowers stem from his external possessions. Spider-Man has a few accessories as well, but he is a hero because of spider powers. He obtained when he was bitten by a radioactive spider. His nature has been changed. Batman's hasn't. He is now has new power accessible to him within him. And so Christ in you, God coming to dwell in you, makes you more like Spider-Man than Batman, if that helps you. Obviously, it helps these people here. In other words, something alien from you has come into you. Becoming a Christian, there's a mystery here, but we have to penetrate it. Becoming a Christian isn't I just believe certain things. It's not that I now live a certain way. It's that I have a new power, the Holy Spirit. I am a tabernacle. God lives in me. I, I, I have a new, a new heart, new power, new opportunity. So the way the Bible describes this, and Tim and I are reading a book about this called Union with Christ, and it's like a marriage. It's so intimate. You're in Christ and Christ is in you. Or it's like a vine and a branch. Remember that analogy of Jesus? That the, the branches are so entwined with the vine that the life of the vine is going into the branches and therefore you're changed. Or it's like a head with a body and Christ is a head. And we're, it's, we're, so un, we're so connected here. God has come to make his home in us. So change is inevitable. So Paul says, you are being transformed. And if you know the Corinthian church, they were a bit of a mess. And Paul says, now, you are being transformed right now because God has made a home within you. We have a new life inside of you. Do you know that? Are you asking God for that change? Are you enjoying that change? Growth is inevitable. Now, some of you are going, no, Steve, it doesn't feel inevitable. I don't feel it. Ah, I've got four more points. Okay, wait till the end of my talk. But one of the reasons you might not be feeling or sensing this change is because you don't really know how to relate to the Holy Spirit. God the Father, you get. Jesus, my Lord and Savior, you get. The the Holy, what do I do with him? 
One author put it like this, our relationship to the Holy Spirit is often like that between a husband and wife in a bad marriage. They live under the same roof and the husband makes constant use of his wife's services, but he fails to communicate with her, recognize her presence and celebrate his relationship with her. So we too need to learn to relate to the Holy Spirit, to communicate with him, to recognize his presence, to celebrate our relationship with him. Christ dwells in us now through the Holy Spirit. Paul says, it's inevitable. You're going to change. You are being transformed by the Lord who is the Spirit. Secondly, Christian change is continuous. Notice Paul doesn't say, when you become a Christian, you're the finished product. No, no. Becoming a Christian was just the start of a wonderful adventure. Absolutely, when you turn to Christ, do you see the passage? Something changes, a veil is removed. I've gone from death to life, from darkness to light, from condemned under my sin to free from that sin because the penalty has been paid for. I've gone from being veiled to seeing Christ. (gasps) There's been a change. So yes, there is a moment where I was an enemy of God and now I'm a friend of God. I was not the place where God dwelt and now I accepted Jesus and I am the place where God dwells. So there is a moment of change in your legal status, but morally, in your character, in your mindset, in your attitudes, that's on and on and on and on. That doesn't all get sorted out immediately. The work God has done when you become a Christian has just started, and he wants to transform you into his image, the image which every human should and we once reflected until our first parents fell, and that image became marred and scarred and broken, and none of us now image, none of us mirror God like we were supposed to And we should. We only partially reflect God's image. And so Christ comes to make his home in us by the Spirit. But it's going to take quite a bit of time for Jesus to make his home in your heart. Did you know that? To really settle in and become resident because there's a lot of work to be done. Do you remember the tabernacle, all the details, 13 chapters? The gold, the purple, the cherubim, the curtains, the veils, the poles, the rings, the floral limb. I mean, there was so many detail to say, this is what was required. Every detail needs to be attended to so God can come and be resident and make his home here as king. We need a garden temple palace fit for a king as Eden was. So God has taken up residence in every single one of you who claims to be a Christian, who's put, his, put your trust in Jesus. But there's a lot of work to be done. There's a bit of clearing out to be done. There's some realigning that needs to be done. And, uh, but he will, he will make his home with you continually. He's working. But here's the thing. I don't feel like it's inevitable. Change is often very tough. And it feels tough. We're about to move house. Oh, it feels tough at times. It's hard work. And so when God changes you, it can often be painful rather than d- enjoyable. And that's why you go, I don't feel like I'm being changed. Well, it's because what, what are you expecting? Some co- cozy feeling? This is what C.S. Lewis once said. Imagine yourself as, as a living house, which is exactly what the Bible tells us we should do. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abdominally and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation, he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor in there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, 
but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Paul says Christian change is inevitable. God's come to take his place, and it's continuous. It's going to take time to really, for him to be fully resident, where you give him full reigns as king of your heart, and it will therefore be painful as he has to kick some stuff out that shouldn't be in the house. But Paul says, make no mistake, you are being transformed. Christian change is inevitable, continuous, progressive. Paul says, with ever-increasing glory. I'm sure you've all had that painful experience when you were growing up, when you hadn't seen an auntie and uncle for a couple of years, and then, you know, you see them and they're like, oh, haven't you grown, you know? Oh, you look like just like your mother. And you're like, oh, this is agony. I'm 11 years old. Leave me alone, you know? Do you remember those experiences? Why? They hadn't seen you for two years. And when your parents who are with you every day don't notice that you're growing every day because it's so subtle, it's so gradual, your growth. But an auntie or uncle who hasn't seen you for a couple of years looks at you and goes, wow, look at the progress. That's Christian change. Day by day, you don't see it. You don't feel it. You don't know it. Five years later, my mindset, he's changed me. I'm softer. I'm kinder. I'm more courageous. I developed self-control. What happened? God says, I wasn't making a little cottage. I came to make a palace. I'm king. I'm here to live. It'll take time. Give me time. And I will make a wonderful home where I can live in you. It will happen. It will be inevitable. It will be unseen. But over time, he says, you are being transformed with ever-increasing glory. You are. Hallelujah. The king is here. And he wants to change you. What hope what joy. Christian hope, a Christian change is inevitable, continuous, progressive, and it's passive. Notice how Paul says, our being transformed, and that transformation comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words, just as we saw with the Ten Commandments, you cannot change your character, your personality, your, 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 you can't bring moral change in you through hard work and effort and discipline and fear of judgment. It doesn't work. Never will. It's not something you do. I'm going to strive to change. You won't. In fact, you'll probably just become bitter and proud and all kinds of negative things. You won't become ever-increasing glory. Change happens, verse 16, as we turn to the Lord and the Spirit comes and He brings the freedom. We've got to cooperate. We've got to participate. We're going to get to that in a minute. But all our cooperation, all our participation is just that. It's just a cooperation and a participation in what God is doing. So all your striving, all your hard work, if you're forcing yourself trying to be disciplined, while those things can bring a temporary benefit and the world will tell you every year, every six months, do this, go on a detox, try harder, try. No, that's why the world has to say it every six months, every year. Because it didn't work. We couldn't change. The Israelites knew it. So they started to worship a golden calf, even though God had just said, don't do this. And the very next day or the very next week or whatever, they start doing it. Only God can change our hearts. And so our responsibility is to cooperate with that. And as we've seen, the change can be unseen often, and it means submitting to painful and challenging situations in our lives where God has to deal with something in us. As C.S. Lewis says, this can hurt abdominally, and it doesn't seem to make sense. But God is at work. You don't grow as a Christian by trying really hard, by trying really to be really disciplined. You grow by learning to rely on that friend, the Holy Spirit. You've got to get to know him. You've got to pray to him. You've got to ask him more into your life. You've got to walk in step with him. When you feel the prick of your conscience, you've got to say, Lord, you're convicting me by your spirit. I need to do this. 
I've got a moment to be courageous or cowardly. Holy Spirit, you want me to be courageous. Lord, help me to cooperate to be courageous now. You've got to invite and walk with and learn to speak and engage with the Holy Spirit every day. He lives in, in you. If you try to do it by yourself, you'll become judgmental and proud and stubborn. You'll become exhausted and start to despair. This is God's work, not yours. You just cooperate. So change as a Christian is inevitable, continuous, progressive, passive, but it is active because we do have to cooperate. We have to play our part. What is our role? What do you do as a Christian if you want to change? People say, I want to I change. What do I do? Paul says, contemplate the Lord's glory. It's kind of still fairly passive. Let's read the verse. And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed. As I said, to gaze or to mirror. Now you go, how do I see God's face? Moses got to go up there and speak with him and encounter God. I don't get those experiences. How do I? That's why Paul goes on to say, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We get to encounter God's glory in Christ. And you go, I'm still not with you, Steve. I cannot see Christ's face. Do you know when Moses went up there, do you remember? He didn't see God's face we actually get a deeper encounter with God because Moses couldn't see his face and live, but we can. What did Moses get then? Moses heard a voice. And every time he went up, he encountered God's voice. He didn't encounter God's face. So what does Paul say? We see the light of the gospel. That we see the light of the gospel. The gospel, the good news. The word of God that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We see Jesus through the good news that was proclaimed through the New Testament and as we read the word. And so Paul says, therefore we present it plainly. Verse 3 of that chapter. He says, I don't use any dodgy techniques. I just got to get this truth out there because people then see Jesus. And he says, the same God who made light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, makes his light shine in your heart so you do see Jesus as the word is proclaimed and as you read the word. We start to behold him. We start to contemplate him. We start to meditate on him. We start to see him. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. This isn't a physical sight. Moses didn't get the physical sight. The people of Israel, we want something to see, a golden calf. Moses, God says, no, it's something inward. The eyes of your heart see Jesus. You start beholding and gazing and ah, you're amazed. And this is where we must be active and play our part. This is where the battle is won or lost. The Israelites lost the battle. They wanted to see God with their physical eyes. They wanted immediate gratification rather than to learn to discern him in the heart. God's word through Moses wasn't enough for them. And so it is with us. We need to behold Christ in the gospel, in the New Testament, and let the eyes of our hearts be enlightened. When did it happen? When has it last happened for you? Was it during a sermon? Was it during one of the songs? Was it in a time of prayer? Was it chatting to a believer? Was it out in the mountains? Was it as you're listening to some worship music, walking somewhere? Was it, was it reading the Bible on your own at one point? And suddenly, you were encountering God himself, the eyes of your heart, and you were, I'm beholding him. I could stay here. Something's happened. This isn't just an intellect. Something is happening. I'm encountering God. Maybe it's happening right now through this service, through this talk. You're seeing the light of the gospel that displays the glory of God in the face of Christ. But as I said, this is where the battle is won or lost. This is where we have to be active. Because you see, whatever you behold, 
whatever you gaze, whatever you linger on, whatever you let your thoughts be consumed by, you will start to mirror. You become like what you worship. You mirror what you gaze at. You start to reflect the thing that you find beautiful. So we need to treasure and love Christ above all else. What does the world around us tell us to behold? What does the world around you say? Gaze on this, find this, linger on this. Let this consume you. Well, it's summarized by the famous money, sex, power. The world says, if you have these, ah. To make money, to prove yourself, to be comfortable, to be in a sexually fulfilling relationship, to be true to your feelings and true to yourself, to idolize celebrity culture, to seek control and status. Behold these things, gaze upon them, contemplate them, but you do become like them. Your whole identity and, de- and destiny will be wrapped up in them. You will find change in your life. Whatever you behold, you will find an inevitable, continuous, progressive, and passive you'll be being molded by the world. And in five years' time, you'll go, I didn't gaze on Jesus. I gazed on my career. I gazed on comfort. I gazed on, I gazed on ease. I, I gazed about, I needed to have this relationship. Five years later, I'm, yeah, I'm reflecting those things. My whole mindset, my, my, I didn't win the battle of what did I want to behold. What was where, where was I going to find the thing that was most beautiful in this world? The Israelites failed. God says, by the Spirit. You know, the Spirit's main role, if you read John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, is to glorify Christ. That's why the Spirit was given, so that we might find Christ beautiful. We might taste him, we might sense, and the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. That the Spirit might bring us to Jesus. Whatever you behold, you become like. And the question is, is what you're beholding now leading to death or to life? I believe it's only in Christ that we're given true life. And so that's our part in Christian change. That's how we're active. We choose who and what we'll worship, what we'll gaze upon, what we'll contemplate, what we'll spend time doing. That's where the battle is won or lost. But again, this is something that the Holy Spirit wants to help us with. The Holy Spirit wants to fill us. The Holy Spirit wants to whisper a different story. So what's one practical thing you can do from today? What's the active part? I've been hinting at it the whole way through. How do you involve the Holy Spirit more in your life, in your daily life? You know the constant voice that narrates your life at the moment, that begins every morning as you wake up and it says, what am I going to do? What's the, what do I have to do today? What's in it for me? What do I? Well, start practicing the truth that you're the tabernacle. Every morning wake up and go, what do we have to do? What are we going to achieve today? What are you, Holy Spirit, as you live in me, teaching me today? Change the language from I to we. Start involving him. Start praying little prayers at work. Start waking up in the morning going, God, I've missed my time of prayer and reading the Bible. I've got to jump on the bus. Holy Spirit, help me today. You loved me. Involve him. Speak to him. He's there. But are we living in this bad marriage where, yeah, we make use of his services and cry out now and again, but really we don't know him, we don't communicate We don't celebrate our relationship. As you let the Spirit point you to Jesus so that you gaze upon him and behold him and the eyes of your heart are enlightened, you will change. It'll be inevitable. It'll be continuous. It'll be progressive. And then it'll be passive. You'll go, it's not even, you'll look back in five years and go, it wasn't me, it was the Spirit. I just allowed the Spirit to point me to Jesus. And we all, 
with unveiled faces contemplate, behold, mirror the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you want to stand? We're going to pray. I'm going to read a couple of Psalms, and then we're going to sing. And I want you to take, take that thought. What are you beholding? What are you gazing on? What are you becoming like? And I want to just read two, two psalms that reflect on this tabernacle in beautiful song. Psalm 84. Why don't you close your eyes and uh, we can have some music kick off. And just, I want, us, I want God to enlighten the eyes of our heart now so we see Jesus. Psalm 84. A psalm is singing a song about the tabernacle. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. And then Psalm 27, David's in a right mix. He's got all these reasons to fear. And he says, in the middle of these fears, he says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. This is Psalm 27. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. David is under real pressure in Psalm 27. He says, one thing I ask, that I be in your presence to gaze on your beauty. Everything will be okay. That's what we're going to do now. So, Father, we thank you for this amazing truth. Being a Christian isn't just believing certain things. It's not even responding to what we know you've done for us with acts of obedience ourselves. It is you coming to make your home in us, uniting your life to ours, sending your spirit into our lives so we can have a freedom. The veil has been removed. We see Jesus for who he is and what he's done. And as we gaze upon him, we start to mirror him. And you're changing us every day. I pray for those people here who, who, who have got pessimistic about change in their lives, who have got cynical, who have lost hope, or who are looking for spectacular things rather than the continuous, progressive, hidden, unseen, and the daily battle of beholding Christ above other things. Lord, as we sing now, help us to see Jesus with the eyes of our heart and be smitten by him. In your name we pray. Amen.